Good morning, Northwest Community Church. My name's Adam, and I'm excited to be bringing a message this morning out of God's Word. You know, it's been a tough week. Been, been trying to figure out what to say. What message can I leave to my church family of 11 years? You know, and I thought, uh, you guys have been listening to me talk for 11 years, so you probably don't want to hear me say anything else. Um, but then the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, Adam, when has it ever been your words? Just preach truth. Just preach love. You know, I've begged God over the last few weeks to forgive me of my numbness and my temptation to indifference with what's going on in our country. I'm tired of sitting back and being broken, but simply saying again and not doing anything about it. You know, but what can I do? I've asked myself that question a thousand times. What can I do? And maybe you're struggling to answer that yourself. You know, what credibility does my voice carry? I struggle to empathize and I don't have the answers. You know, I, I know where to start. Yeah, you know, I, I've committed myself to listening. I've committed myself to learning. I've committed myself to trying to understand and empathize. You know, one thing that I know for sure is that if we want to see change in the midst of any injustice, we've got to inject the gospel into its veins. See, while Jesus was preaching a gospel message requiring salvation, he was also addressing political, racial, and social issues. He was stepping into the hurt of those being abused and oppressed. He dined with prostitutes and tax collectors. He spent time with those whose voices society had snuffed out. And by his actions, he was telling them, you matter. You matter. And he was doing this through a self-sacrificing, culture-defying kind of love. Now, please stay with me. Don't hit the pause button. Don't X me out. The message this morning is one that we find embedded in every single story in the Bible. It's a message of love. Specifically, it's a message on how our relationship with God creates an outpouring of love that can change the world. So go ahead and grab your Bible. Go ahead and open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And you know, may, many of you may be familiar with this passage. Some call it the love chapter. And maybe you, like millions of other people who are married, use this as one of the main passages at your wedding. You know, I've found a lot of great success in student ministry over the years when I am able to interact with a student, challenge a student, and love a student in the way that Paul talked about love in this chapter. It's an incredibly powerful thing when you can love in the self-sacrificing kind of way that he talks about. So I want to read 1 Corinthians 13, and then I want to break it down a little bit and see exactly what Paul's saying. So let's read it together, verses 1 through 7, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, real quick, before we, we start breaking this down, I do want to bring to mind a verse out of 1 John 4, 16. Here's what it says. So we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So a defining characteristic of God is love. I mean, this passage in 1 John doesn't say that God loves or God shows love. It says God is love. It's intrinsic to his nature. So as we immerse ourselves in God's word this morning, keep in mind that God is love perfected. Another thing to note is that all throughout this passage, we see this word love, love, love. And the kind of love that we see here is that Greek word agape. It's the kind of self-sacrificing love that always places the interests of others above our own. You think about others first, just as Jesus did, proving in Philippians as he came down to serve and not to be served. So with all this in mind, let's get into it. All right, Paul begins this passage speaking of some extreme actions. He speaks of these things that if a human being were to attain these things, it would be very, very impressive in our minds. So he speaks to these six things. First, he says that if, if you can speak in the tongues of men and angels. Now, he's not saying that it's a Pentecostal view of speaking in tongues here. Nowhere in scripture do we see angels using any sort of supernatural heavenly language. In fact, anytime we see angels speaking, it's in the language that's understandable to the recipient. Instead, what Paul's trying to convey here is, is this idea of eloquence, of, of, um, of like a, a linguistic fluency. In other words, you could be the smoothest talker on the planet. You could be the, the most, the, the best with words and, and how, you, how you put them together and, and how you craft your speech. And it can be so appealing and so easy to listen to. And you can be the best at it. But if it's not driven by love, if your speech is not affected by love, then it's just an unbearable noise. Interesting fact here, Paul's actually kind of referring here to some, uh, during the time in the New Testament, some practices by pagan religions. There's these rites that were honoring pagan deities like Cybele and Dionysus. And, and what would happen is they would speak in these really ecstatic noises and it would be accompanied by smashing gongs and by clanging cymbals and by blaring trumpets. And so what Paul is bringing the reader's mind to is these pagan rituals and he's comparing it to a lack of love. It's pretty harsh right off the bat. And then he moves into the second one. He says, you could have prophetic powers. You could get direct messages from God. He could speak directly to you and give you a message. 
But if you don't know how to deliver it out of love, then it's meaningless. Think about Balaam in the Old Testament. Balaam was a prophet. Balaam got the message from God. Balaam knew God. He knew God's words. He knew the truth about God. But in an instant, he betrayed Israel and he cursed Israel just so he could get a little bit of money from the king of Moab. And that eventually led to Balaam's death. So prophesying with no love is a dangerous thing. And then he says, you could, have, you could know all the mysteries and all the knowledge there is to know in the world. It could be the natural world. It could be the spiritual world. Hypothetically speaking, you could know as much as God knows. But all of that intellect would, would amount to nothing if there was not love. It could create pride. It could create arrogance. As one pastor said, it could create a spiritual snobbery. And then he moves on to number four. He says, you could have all faith. You could have the greatest faith in the world. You could have the kind of faith that if you believed it, a mountain would move. That's how great your faith is. But he says, if you have that kind of faith and there's no love behind it, it doesn't mean anything. And then he says, you can give away everything that you have. The word give here, by the way, means to give out in small quantities, which would imply that it's not just a one-time giving of everything you have, but it's an ongoing, life-defining type of giving. It's, it's who you are. It's just what you do. But if you're doing it for any sort of selfish gain, or if you're doing it not to love others, then he says all that giving, everything you've given, is meaningless. And then he says in his sixth point, maybe you have the kind of faith that would lead to persecution, that would lead to death, and you're taking joy in that persecution. He says delivering your body up to be burned. Now, in the early church, when persecution really began... A lot of the early believers looked forward to persecution and wanted to be martyred for their faith because they thought it was going to get them honor. It was going to have them be remembered, but they thought it was going to give them a heavenly treasure more so than others because of them dying for their faith. Paul says that there's not love behind that. It's all for selfish gain. It doesn't mean anything. So he lays out these six extremes. He says you could be the best talker on the planet. You could be a prophet getting a direct message from God. You could be all-knowing. You could hold the world record for the most faith ever. You could have won your senior superlative for the most likely to be generous. You could be willing to die for what you believe. But all of those things, no matter if you attain them all, they mean nothing without love. And Paul is like, you know what? It just, it's meaningless. You go after these things. And as Solomon says, it's all vanity. We must have love. And I'm sure at this point, the readers are like, okay, Paul. So, and Paul's like, hey, you know what? I'm glad you asked. Let me throw verses four through seven at you. Let's reread them. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. John Piper, in a message that he preached on this text, correlated this type of love with death. In order to love like this, he says, we must die to ourselves. But those weren't his words. Those were Jesus' words. Now, John Piper did a masterful job creating this message, but Jesus says it in John 12, 24, and 25. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, if you die to yourself, there will be fruit. I think this is where the struggle lies for a lot of us. You know, maybe we don't really understand what that means. Maybe we don't really understand what that looks like. It isn't a one-time thing, but it's a daily conscious decision to love this way. One pastor says this, we are praying for revival. And if we're on the right track, there must be dying before there's reviving. It's not surprising that before there can be love, there must be death. So Paul gives us 15 descriptions of love, and just about all of them involve what Jesus called dying to self. It's required to love this way. And I want to talk about just a few of them, not all 15, but I want to talk about a few of them and how we can see that contrast of dying to self and loving out of selfish gain. So love is patient and love is not irritable. A better way maybe to say this would be that love is is long-suffering and love is not easily angered. I think we can all relate to this one pretty well. I mean, think about if you're sitting in traffic on the freeway and you're on your way to an appointment. You know that feeling that you start getting when you see the clock getting closer and closer to the time you're supposed to be there, but you're stuck in traffic. You know, maybe you have that newborn baby who loves singing at the top of their lungs in the wee hours of the morning. Maybe you get on Facebook and you see that nonsensical political rant from one of your friends. You know, no matter how patient we might be, when the right buttons are pushed, we can very easily be provoked to anger. We can be provoked to complaining, to criticizing. And what's the solution? The solution is is that part of our nature must die. If I'm to love like this, something inside of me must be put to death. My desire to have a smooth, trouble-free life must die. The idea that things need to happen according to my perfect schedule, that idea must die. It's a conscious every morning when I wake up decision to die to myself. It's that self-sacrificial type of love. When my baby is crying and interrupting my sleep schedule, when I'm half asleep, am I I getting angry with my child? Has my patience run thin? Man, I was guilty of this probably every single night when, when my children were babies. But what does love tell me? To suffer long, to endure long, would tell me to love them in, in patience and endure with them in their crying out of love for my children. Try to understand why they're upset. Try to listen and figure out, well, maybe you don't listen to a baby crying, but you try to figure out why are you crying? What's the matter? And try to address that need rather than immediately snapping because you're so tired and you're so concerned with your sleep and you're so whatever. And it's so self-absorbed rather than others minded. He also says that love does not brag. That love is not arrogant. I think we can all agree that it feels pretty good when someone notices us and our accomplishments and our successes. It feels good when people compliment us and affirm us. That's okay. We also know that it doesn't feel good when people make fun of us, when people mock us, belittle us, when they humiliate us. 
you know, most of the time when people are making fun of us, it comes from a place, a deep place of pain and insecurity. You know, we like to focus on how to make ourselves feel better and look better by belittling other people and pointing out the faults of someone else. Sometimes we, draw, we try to draw attention to ourselves by always talking about how bad our life has been. I like what one pastor had to say about this. He said, self-pity and boasting are both forms of pride. One is pride in the heart of the weak and the other is pride in the heart of the strong. So Paul's telling us here that to love in this way would mean that we don't try and elevate ourselves by talking about our successes. I would even say with what we see going on around us right now in our world, it's important to talk about what we think is right and about our opinions and how we express those. You know, we like to puff ourselves up by trying to sound intelligent when we don't know sometimes what we're talking about. You know, we post things on social media that are ill-informed and ignorant. But it appears to make us look intelligent and right. Now, the kind of love that Paul's talking about here is others-directed, not self-consumed. In order to love this way, something in our hearts must die. The glory-loving, self-exalting, attention-seeking, whining, pouting, self-pitying me has to die. Think back on what Jesus said in John 12. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. Alone in its self-absorbed prison. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The fruit is love. And all the people will see Jesus through that kind of love. That's the fruit that we bear. And then Paul says, love does not seek its own. This doesn't mean that it's wrong to want to be happy. But don't hear me say that. Paul's not saying that. What Paul's saying is that this kind of love does not seek a personal preference without regard for what may be good for other people. He's also not saying that you shouldn't stand up for what you believe to be true. I mean, Paul died for his convictions. But what he is saying, and I cannot stress how important this is for us as Christians and for God's church today, especially right now. You better make sure, I better make sure, we better make sure that our convictions of truth align with the truth of God's word. If you come to a conclusion on something without first seeking the truth of God's word, then it's founded on personal bias and preference. Another great quote by another great pastor says this, to the, to the degree that your preference is yours and not compellingly found in God's word, to that degree should you be slow to seek it and slow to get angry when others don't share it. Love seeks the good of many, not just the comfort of self. Let me, I'm going to read that again because this is so, so important. To the degree that your preference is yours and not compellingly found in God's word, to that degree should you be slow to seek it and slow to get angry when others don't share it. Love seeks the good of many, not just the comfort of self. So if we're going to love like this, something in us must die. We must die to our own. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer is famously quoted for saying, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. A relationship with Jesus requires a dying to ourselves. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's a theme that we see throughout the teachings of Jesus and throughout the letters to the churches. Perhaps the most difficult verse for us to hear is found in 1 John 4.8, where it says, But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In a time in our country where division and indifference prevail, we as Christians need to live and love the way that Paul admonishes us to in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I found a how-to list that I thought was very, very helpful as we kind of wrap up our talk this morning. Remember, before revival, there must be a dying in each of us. Before we see a great resurgence of love, we have to die. So here's the list. Being long-suffering means dying to the desire for an untroubled life. Having no jealousy means dying to the desire for unshared affection. Not boasting means dying to the desire to call attention to our successes. Not acting unbecomingly means dying to the desire to express our freedom offensively. Not seeking our own way means dying to the dominance of our own preferences. Not being easily provoked means dying to the need of having no frustrations. Not taking account of wrongs means dying to the desire for revenge. Bearing all things, enduring all things means that we have to die to the desire to run away from the pain of obedience. This is love. This love can change the world. It did. It did change the world. When Jesus came to this earth, showed us a self-sacrificial type of love, went to the cross, bore the sins of all humanity, that kind of love changed the world forever. After the, this, I looked and behold, I saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from every tribe, from all peoples, from all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Let us shine the light of love on a world that so desperately needs it. Love you guys. God, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. And um, thank you that you tell us how to love. Because God, it's not in our nature to love like you command us to. It's not in our nature to want to do for others first. It's not in our nature to love self-sacrificially. It's in our nature to desire our own, to want what's best for us, to want to express our preferences even if they may hurt, to express opinions even if they may not be founded on your truth. But God, thank you that we have your word to guide us, to direct us, to convict and challenge us. And God, I pray that this kind of love would flow through us and into a world that needs it. 
God, I pray that we would not stay silent, but that we would love, that we would step into the pain of others, that we would listen to the pain of others, that we would understand more the pain of others, but God, that it would all be rooted in love and grounded and founded on your gospel. We love you so much. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. See you guys.